This episode is brought to you by the new novel A Slice of Mars by longtime Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener Garrett Cachet. A Slice of Mars presents an optimistic vision of life on Mars and explores the day-to-day lives of regular people living in a future in which the workplace, the family, and adult friendships have all been radically changed by future technologies and speculative cultural shifts. Inspired by the speculative societies of books such as Infomocracy and The Left Hand of Darkness, A Slice of Mars explores topics such as transhumanism, biodiversity, automation, and universal basic income. And here's a description of the book. It says, Mars is a strange place these days. Corporate overlords, capitalism, and even aging are things of the past. On a planet increasingly brimming with biodiversity, yet pizzerias are in short supply. Siblings Het and San set out to change that. But a roboticist and a bureaucrat can't run a restaurant alone. So they bring on some help. A bioengineer, a communication scientist, and an unlikely grad student from Earth. Together, this gang of geeks will brave the fires of small business. But work is just a small part of life. People are complicated. Different brains, different wounds, different values, and one questionably tame wildcat will all collide as they try to grow and succeed together. What comes out of the oven in the end is anyone's guess. Perfect for fans of Legends and Lattes, the Wayfarer series, and the Cemeteries of Amalo, A Slice of Mars is the low-stakes, high-tech novel you've been looking for. So again, the author is Garrick Hache, so that's Garrick, G-U-E-R-R-I-C, Hache, H-A-C-H-E, and the book is called A Slice of Mars. Alright, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 538 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley, author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And today on the show, we'll be discussing the recent book, The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2022, which features 20 stories by authors such as Elizabeth Baer, Meg Ellison, Stephen Graham Jones, Navo Hopkinson, Kelly Link, Karen Russell, Peng Shepard, and Catherine M. Valenti. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed Magazine and the series editor of The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and he's also edited more than 30 other anthologies. His latest project is the anthology Lost Worlds and Mythological Kingdoms from Grim Oak Press. So, John, welcome back. Always good to be here. The next up, we've got Rebecca Roanhorse, who served as guest editor for The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2022. She's a New York Times bestseller and a Hugo, Nebula, and Locust award-winning author. She's written multiple short stories and six novels, including Trail of Lightning, Black Sun, and Star Wars Resistance Reborn. She's also written for Marvel Comics, for television, and has had projects options by Amazon Studios and AMC Studios. The Mirrored Heavens, the third book in her Between Earth and Sky trilogy, will be out in 2024. So, Rebecca, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And also joining us today is P.J. Lee Clark. He's the author of the novel A Master of Jinn, and the award-winning and Hugo, Nebula, and Sturgeon-nominated author of the novellas Ring Shout, The Black God's Drums, and The Haunting of Tramcar 015. His short stories have appeared in online venues such as Tor.com, 
Heroic Fantasy Quarterly, and It's Beneath Useless Skies. And his story, If the Martians Have Magic, which first appeared in Uncanny, was reprinted in the Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2022. So, Fenderson, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. Okay, so let's start off with John. So, John, what was it like working on this year's volume of Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy? Uh, well, it's uh, it was great as always. Uh, you know, it's always uh, very difficult to sort through all of the stories that are published over the course of a year and find the ones to end up putting on the the list of top eighty that I give to the guest editor. Um, and uh, Rebecca was lovely to work with. Um, you know, we had uh, we didn't know each other super well before this. So, I mean, we'd met and stuff, and in, in, in corresponded a few times and and all that. But uh, um, it was very cool to uh, get to work with her in this level. And uh, we got to do an event about this book in Chicago. Um, a couple months ago um uh it was it was quite a while ago now i can't remember when it was but um you know it, that was fun to you know meet up in person and do an event which we had i hadn't done at least in a long time since since covid and everything um and uh so yeah so that was uh that was fun and uh um, you know, I don't know. All all of these kind of blend together. They're all kind of the experience <laughs> is all kind of the same doing them. Um, it's always hard to pick. It's always there's always a wealth of wonderful material. Uh, so it's it's hard to be more specific. But um, but yeah. So you want to say more more about that event? So like where was it and how many oh, sure. people showed up and stuff like that? Uh, yeah, it was in Chicago. Uh, Veronica Roth uh, moderated it for us. Um, you know, uh, I had edited uh, her novels when I was running my novel imprint, so um, I was just like, hey, uh, we want to. I want to hang out with you when I come to Chicago. So hey, how about you moderate this event while we're at it? You know. Um, so she did, and um, yeah, I don't know. There was about maybe I don't know, like. 30 or 40 people there, I think maybe, oh, wow. uh, I don't, I don't know if you remember Rebecca, if it was more or more or less than that, but, um, it was at the American writers museum, um, which is actually a really cool place. Uh, if you're in Chicago, I think it is definitely worth checking out. Um, they have like these different halls of, um, that, that, like different halls where there's like exhibits. And like one of them was like, uh, like a timeline of American writing. And so like, they had like these different, um, interactive exhibits, uh, where it's like, you know, you could like, turn a little uh, thing on the wall and it's like, and there's, there might be like a, a little video screen on there and then like, it'll play a little something. So there was like one of those for Fahrenheit 451, um, you know, uh, and uh, you know, there's, there, you know, there wasn't a ton of genre stuff in there um, as you would expect uh, for something that's covering every, everything in American writing, but, uh, but it was, it's a, it's a pretty cool place. Yeah, that's cool. All right. So let's get Rebecca in here. So Rebecca, uh, kind of, do you remember when John first contacted you, contacted you about doing this uh, Best American thing? Uh, I don't, actually. <laughs> I'm sure it was an email. I'm sure John was like, hey, I'm doing this thing. Are you interested? And of <laughs> course, I was familiar with it. Uh, you know, I've, I've um, uh, read the anthology before. Uh, and I know <laughs> I, t- I did tell the story at the Chicago event, so I think it's okay to tell again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a story, uh, a short story called Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience, trademark, uh, that I believe came out in 2017 uh, and won the Hugo and the Nebula. Uh, and they did not make the cut uh, for the best American science fiction fantasy of that year. Uh, and I gave John a lot of grief about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think he remembers me uh, because of that. And then he asked me, you know, to do some other uh, uh, anthologies. And we never, uh, it never quite lined up with my schedule. Uh, but this one did. And, and so we had a chance to work together. Uh, and so that was uh, very exciting. And of course, you know, John is uh, sort of a legend in the field. 
so uh, the fact that our, our schedules could align and I could work on this and that he thought, you know, that I, I was worthy uh, of the guest editor position, which has been quite uh, illustrious. There's a lot of uh, kind of big time writers who have done it, including N.K. Jemison and Diana Gebelon, uh, Veronica, of course. Uh, Carmen Maria Machado, uh, Joe Hill, you know, so, so to be asked to join that company, uh, I felt, you know, that was, that was pretty cool. And then he trusted my taste, uh, which was extra cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I, I was happy to do it. So what was it like having, uh, 80, 80 short stories that you, uh, needed to read through and judge? <laughs> You know, I, I, it was not bad because uh, I love short science fiction and fantasy. So it was not a burden at all. Uh, and my remembrance is that I had uh, plenty of time to do it. Uh, although, you know, it could be a little bit like childbirth. <laughs> uh, you forget the, the pain of it <laughs> and you say, hey, I could do that again. But, uh, you know, I, did, I didn't mind. I had actually been asked to judge uh, a novel uh, contest, which wanted me to read like a hundred novels Oof. in like three months or something. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, so, but this could happen. This was not, you know, so bad. Uh, so I didn't mind it at all. And, and I love, you know, the field and I don't always get a chance to read all the new uh, short fiction that's coming out in a year. Uh, I usually am more focused on, on reading the novels, although certainly not at that volume and in, in that, you know, time frame. Uh, so this was a treat, actually. Uh, I was excited to do it. So, so reading over those 80 stories, were there any particular, uh, anything about them that jumped out at you? Any themes or, uh, you know, oh, anything like that? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I say in my introduction, these uh, stories uh, felt like a lot of them felt like COVID stories to me. Uh, we were still really in the midst of, uh, you know, sort of the, of COVID when, when people wrote these stories, certainly. And, and when I was uh, reading them, I think we'd just come out. Uh, the end, but but certainly the lingering effects uh, of isolation and lack of community and grief uh, and loss and all of those uh, things were still in the air, uh, and I would even argue, you know, still are. Uh, and so that certainly, I think, showed in those stories, uh, and in certainly the stories that spoke to me. Mm -hmm. You mentioned your introduction there. I, I, I thought it was interesting. You say that some of the fantasy stuff that you grew up with was like Susan Cooper's The Darkest Rising and the Dragonlance Chronicles and David Eddings. And I have never actually, I've never read Susan Cooper. I mean, I've, I've heard she's really good. I was just actually reading um, this book called Imre's Laz. It's the collected letters of Roger Zelazny. Oh. And he just goes on and on uh, about how much he loves Susan Cooper. So uh, it was making me kind of interested maybe to check that out. Yeah, you know, I will be honest. Uh, I know it had a huge part in my childhood, but can I remember anything specific about it? <laughs> Besides, I think that it was like super Welsh and they were little kids. Uh, and, you know, I, I was a little black and native kid in Texas, like had nothing in common with these little white Welsh kids, but I adored it, you know, and it was mm -hmm. like this sort of like uh, opening into this like this magical realm and sort of, you know, these uh, heroic journeys and, and things like that. And so I just remember it having a great impact. But can I tell you anything about the story? <laughs> no. I think there were cliffs. I feel like there were some cliffs and there were some danger <laughs> and, you know, things like that. <laughs> However, the Dragonlance Chronicles, I could probably write, write you a <laughs> master's thesis on. So I will not do that. But th those are all oh, remains of my 
favorites. I'm not sure how well they aged, but that doesn't really matter. Yeah. They they hit me at the right time and in the right period. They were great. All right, no, like just forget it, guys. Let's stop this panel. Let's just get a let's just play a D and D session right now. Like, <laughs> no, let's just talk Dragonlance because yeah, like they just released a Dragonlance thing for fifth edition. Come on, let's go. Who oh, here remembers God. Sturm's son shattering? <laughs> Who remembers that line that still gets me for Clint? Oh, nice, nice. Well, I was a Raceland fan, so, you know, if, you can, if you've read any of my, you know, books later, you could see his influence uh, in mm. my work, so, <laughs> for better or worse. It's funny, you know, I was at a convention years ago and uh, George R. R. Martin was on a panel and he said, you know, that he grew up reading like Robert E. Howard and stuff like that. And he says, I feel bad for people who grew up reading awful stuff like Dragonlance. <laughs> and I was like, hey, man, I, I, and I like, like you say, I haven't gone back to it. So maybe, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it won't measure up to my memories. But man, my memories of those books mm-hmm. are so great. Exactly. Everybody's um, nostalgic for what they're nostalgic for. It's my opinion. Good point. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, all right. Yeah, but let's get uh, Fenderson in here as well. So, Fenderson, tell us about how uh, how did you first – do you remember how you first found out you were going to be included in Best American? Uh, I want to say John told me. Yeah, <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> and I said, yay, that's great. Uh <laughs> Um, do you want to say so your story is called if the martians have magic do you uh do you remember kind of how you came up with the idea and stuff like that yeah i think as i as i also say in the book and that i like that little last part where we get to talk about our inspirations i mean i was just always a fan of uh ward worlds um i think i'd actually seen like i've seen probably every version of it that's existed not because i was like a fanatic i just watched them when they came on and so, yes, I watched the old 1960s ones where the aliens were actually in flying crafts. Then I read the book and I found out, oh, they're supposed to come out of the ground. And so it's supposed to be like, pardon me, marching. And then I watched the Tom Cruise one, uh, which I was probably one of the few people who can watch that movie over and over again, despite the young girl screaming a lot, which a lot of people said uh, got on their nerves. Um, love, love that flick. Uh, and so... I was um, always a fan of that. I would later find out about, you know, that the story itself has these anti-colonial themes, or at least was talking about issues of colonialism. Um, And somewhere in my mind, I I don't know exactly where, I wanted to bring in Martians. And I said, hey, what if I bought in some other things too? And the next thing you know, I had uh, Haitian voodoo and uh, a world changed upside down by magic. Somehow that all came into a story. Uh, so did you uh, did you have to do any research for this story? Uh, a little bit. Um, I know I did uh, some research, uh, for instance, on I did some I, I, I knew some background on voodoo, but I wanted to make certain I got certain things right. So I did a little bit of research on that. Um, I did um, some research on, you know, just went to my my book of mythologies and so forth to look up different ideas of folklore around the world. And then the rest really was a lot of, Oh, I I read over war of the Worlds so I could remember the actual story because there've been so many versions of them. (laughs) I wanted to have the version that H.G. Wells had written. So I went back and read that. I think that was the thing that uh, I most um, focused on to try to understand what my Martians would be like. Um, then after that, it was just one of those stories that, I mean, the story has all forms of magic. It has harpies in it. 
there's a little 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 odes to Neil Gaiman in there. Um, there's I just kind of just let my imagination fly with it. So what are the odes to Neil? Oh, Gaiman? I can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What if Neil's listening? You have to read it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so listeners, you just have to. There's a challenge for you. Leave that is a mystery. Those are. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, you say in your note, you say I tried not to concern myself with genre boundaries, alien invasion, uh, Haitian voting, geopolitical geopolitical intrigue, humanish rights. It's all in there because who says it can't be? So did you feel at all like? Uh, any trepidation about like that this was going to be sort of too weird or were you always confident that it would work? Oh, I always think my stories are too weird. That's just normal. <laughs> I always think this story is going to be weird because I throw in there what I want. And, and the more like people might think like, well, wait a minute, this is Martian invasion. What is a, what is a Haitian uh, Fudun priest doing in there? The more people I know that people might think that's a little weird, the more I want to do it. Uh, and so at the end of the day, I'm, I'm never hesitant in doing it, but I always do wonder, um, are people going to get this or is it going to be too weird? Um, but I do it anyway. So what kind of a response have you gotten to the story? Um, again, I'm always surprised. I'm always like, you like this weird story? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I've gotten actually great reception from it. Um, not only is it being featured here, but it was nominated, it was shortlisted. It was nominated, um, won a one at night award. And so I'm really happy at the reception. Um, I tell this to writers. I said, you know, there's always that story and you're wondering, should I put it out there or not? Um, opt for putting it out there. Yeah. So, so you said you went back and re- reread HG Wells after, I guess, a long time. Was it, uh, pretty much the way you remembered it or was it different than? And kind of how it what existed in your memory, um, like, it, it, like the Dragonlance book? I, yeah. I think it was different only because I've also been influenced by so many different War of the Worlds. I've seen versions of it um, that it was hard to separate those from the ones he had written. Right. Like uh, the fact that a lot of it's set in England and I've seen War of the Worlds and they're set everywhere. Right. And so it was it was it was kind of re-remembering in a way. Uh, the story I'd read long ago, but it was refreshing. Mm-hmm. Well, so how, how about Rebecca? Do you remember uh, reading uh, If the Martians Have Magic? Do you have any uh, anything that sticks out in your mind uh, from that story? Oh, well, okay. So I am a big Fenderson fan, as he knows. Uh, and he has a pretty distinctive style and a pretty distinctive world building. Uh, so while the you know the stories do come to me anonymously, Sometimes you pick up on things and you're like, hmm, I wonder, either this is Fenderson or this is a Fenderson stand, you know, working really <laughs> hard to like, you know, like, uh, like write like he does. Uh, and so I was immediately in, enthralled. Like, uh, I'm not, I mean, I, I too watched the Tom Cruise version of War of the Worlds. Uh, although I don't know if I've watched it multiple times. Uh, although I do know my husband has. But anyway, uh, and so, you know, sort of familiar with uh, certainly the milieu and like sort of what you're expecting. Uh, but to see it uh, in uh, Fenderson's world and, and to see the different sort of um, entities at the table and all the sort of politics that are happening, you know, behind the scenes and everything are the things that I really loved about it. I think this world building is so rich and it's so unique. Uh, and so I was immediately drawn in. And I'm always um, 
uh, I'm always uh, inspired by how much uh, someone like Finderson can do, how much world building they can do in so few words uh, and the world that they sort of created all these uh, things that you feel, you know, are sort of um, the foundations of the world that he doesn't even have to show you, but that you can sort of uh, extrapolate, you know, from what's sort of going on on the surface. I thought was very successful. Uh, so I loved it from the get go. I knew that that was uh, one of the best stories in the bunch. Mm-hmm. So is that, is that an experience you had over and over that you sort of had a, uh, an inkling of who might've written the stories or was that a sort of unique to Fenderson that you kind of knew who had a strong sense of who it might be? Uh, no, that was pretty unique. Uh, most of the time I did not. There are certain people that have distinctive voices where you're like, ah, this sounds like a XYZ, you know, sort of story. Uh, but, you know, I could I, I didn't make decisions based on that. I made decisions based on the quality of the work. Uh, but I think probably I would say Finderson and probably Stephen Graham Jones has a really distinct voice. Uh, I was like, oh, this sounds like a Stephen Graham Jones story. Uh, that one is the the kid in the arcade. I was a teenage space yeah. jockey, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so you know, I didn't know. Uh, you know, there's no there's no telling, but I did sort of feel some vindication uh, <laughs> when I did see you know who it was that had written it. I was like, aha, I thought so. Mm-hmm. So, how about John? Is there anything you want to add about if the Martians have magic? Uh, I, I mean, uh, I, I think everybody. Uh, covered anything that I would have added, but um, I, I mean, I think I, I think the idea of uh, you know being able to uh, pick up a writer's style by just the reading the stories anonymously, I think that's that speaks so highly to the the quality of the of the writer uh, that it's uh, it's like a, a really big compliment, you know, whenever you can do that, um, like. I, I haven't had the opportunity to read many stories anonymously um, uh, just because of the way I, I, I work. But um, like one story that I did read anonymously at, at one point when I was working at FNSF was um, I'd read a, a Neil Gaiman story that had been submitted that, um, you know, Gordon had just asked me to read and Neil didn't have his name on the front of the page. Like he did, he did he's Neil Gaiman. He doesn't follow a standard manuscript. <laughs> he, he, he puts his name where he wants to, uh, which in this case was at the end of the story. Uh, so anyway, I was reading the story and I didn't know who it was. And it was just like, it's like, wow, man, this is so good, you know? And, um, and, and it was just like, I, I couldn't quite figure out who it was. I mean, I knew it was like somebody, uh, like Neil Gaiman, but I, I didn't really pinpoint that it was him. Um, so, uh, I, I'm always fascinated when people can actually read stories and, and figure it out and, um, you know, who, who, who the writer is, uh, without knowing, uh, that it was by them. And then, uh, but like I said, I mean, I think it just speaks so highly of the writers. Um, I would have guessed that Kelly link would have been in that, um, realm too, just because she is very distinct, although she does have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, emulators out there. Um, but. Yeah. yeah. And I will say for me, I had, this was my first Kelly link story. Oh, so okay. I was not familiar with her the way that I am with Fenderson and Steven. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. there you go. But obviously I loved her story. Like, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's such a great story. Yeah, I, I like when I had revisited that. Uh, you know, I revisited a bunch of the stories ahead of that Chicago event, and it was like it was, it was like it hit me all over again. It's like, oh man, I forgot how great the story is. Uh, yeah, well, so so the Kelly Link story in this book, it's called Skinder's Veil, vale, mm-hmm. and uh, the basic setup is that there's this flailing grad student, and a friend of his is house sitting this house house in sort of like remote Vermont or something. And um, and she has a family emergency and asks if he can cover for her. And she gives him and so he agrees and, and goes out to this house and she gives him these directions that 
the guy who owns the house, he has a lot of friends who stop by. And if they show up at the back door, he, uh, he, lets, he should let them in and just let them hang out, do whatever they want. But the owner might show up and he will come to the front door and under no circumstances are you to let him into his own house. <laughs> so it's this very, very odd, intriguing setup. And that was really... Um, you know, hitting me reading it when you create a mystery like mm. a mystery like this, like why can't you let the owner into his own house? Mm-hmm. It just makes you want to read read the story so much and find out, you know, find out what's what's going on with this this whole mystery thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I really, really, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you, you. <laughs> I was just going to say that uh, I definitely that tension. I I love tension in a story, but I'm also like a big like chicken. And so tension makes me really uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, but I love when authors can do it, uh, when, when they, you know, sort of create, you know, a situation where you've got to reach the end to find out what happens. And you're just, on, you know, sort of on the edge of your seat going, oh, my gosh, please don't mess this up, protagonist. Mm-hmm. Please, bad things are going <laughs> to happen. Uh, and even uh, in that story, when when the character is going through and, and sort of le- whether or not they're going to let people into the house or not let people in the house, uh, the the mix of fairy tale. I'm sort of a. I'm not huge uh, European fairy tale fan, uh, but the way that Kelly was able to bring some of those elements in, I thought was really masterful and really unusual. I hadn't mm-hmm. quite seen it that way before, uh, and so yeah, I felt that story was really successful on a lot of fronts. Uh, of what she was doing, I was really impressed. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and and, and like. I, I I've read a lot of Kelly's work, and so like I, I I um you know I know that she always does this, but just I I was kind of struck by it, like how just wonderfully written it was, like you know like I mean like I said I mean I would I would expect that from Kelly Link, but this this seemed like it was almost at a, a another level even for her, where I I just felt like I was completely spellbound by it, the entire story. So um yeah it was just yeah it was, it was really something. I was also just speaking of Kelly Link, I was really struck by her author's note where she says that for the last seven years or so, I've been wrestling with an extremely long novel, which is now more or less finished. Uh, mm. You know, I didn't I didn't know if we were ever going to see a Kelly Link novel. So mm-hmm. that was kind of uh, exciting to me to see that she's apparently basically done with one. Yeah. Wow. So ho- hopefully that's, uh, you know very true and not just like the almost part is the thing we should focus on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also thought it was cool. She says that, um, you know, her usual work process is that she'll, you know, go to a coffee shop and meet up with a friend and who's, who's also a writer and they'll just hang out and write all afternoon or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and also she'll um, arrange these, uh, you know, for a bunch of people to all have like a write in in the mm-hmm. house or something, you know, for the week or whatever. So, and that she wasn't able to do that during COVID. Mm-hmm. So, uh, kind of, um, disrupted her usual routine, but I, was, I thought that was cool. I mean, I need to, I don't usually ever, um, uh, do anything like that, except I guess at a, you know, like Clarion or something like mm-hmm. that. But, uh, I hope someone will invite me to something like that. <laughs> sounds, sounds like fun. Uh, how about Fenderson? Did you, uh, did you ever go to any, uh, do you, do you write? Do you ever write with people, other people, other writers around, or is it all solitary? No, I'm, I'm mostly a solitary writer. <laughs> I'm never around enough people <laughs> who are writing for that to happen. I mean, there are a lot of plans. We talk a lot, like, yeah, we're going to do this, that, and the third, and it never works out. Man. I, I write when I can. <laughs> is it two in the morning? Is it uh, my my daughter's asleep? Great, I can I can write now. 
So I try to snatch a yeah, bit of writing <laughs> whenever I'm able. And you have two small children, right? So Yeah, and they've arrived, and I've just told everyone to keep them downstairs. Uh, otherwise, uh, <laughs> this is going to be something else. Um, yeah. Someone will have to please uh, keep them downstairs a second. I was going to say on the... Um, on that story everybody was talking about, Skinder's Veil, vale. yeah, that was a that was a trippy story. Um, and I guess <laughs> I related to it on several levels. One, I was once a grad student, and so trying to finish a dissertation, so it it took me back to a lot of places, and I, I the struggle was real. Um, <laughs> but the whole notion of like the house, I mean, first of all, the story is hilarious, and so as much as there's this fairy tale, there's this deadpan way uh, of writing mm-hmm. where a lot of the times I'm just laughing uh, by the way the story is narrated, right? Um, and uh, when he's going on about his roommate and the sex constantly, <laughs> it's it's humorous. <laughs> and, so, and I remember having roommates and that kind of thing that you're out of now, but there's a time in your life when that has to happen. And so the story itself, the whole time, like, where is this going? And I have to know where it's going. It was like the one story, like I kept... Like every time I had to stop it, I was like, I have to go back because I have to figure out where the story is going and what's going to happen here. Um, but yeah, the the tension of the rule. I mean, even before the rules, by the time I got to the rules, I was hooked. And you just knew that at some point, I'm not trying to give it away. You just knew at some point, okay, I know how stories go. Those rules are going to have to be confronted, right? Especially the last rule about never letting the owner in. You know they're going to have to be confronted. And I think it's like Rebecca, you were saying, talking about the tension. I was like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? What's he going to do? Because the character is so, he does things that you don't, like, you're like, dude, get it together. Right. He looks exactly. like the guy who's just going to do the wrong thing. And he can it can go anyway with this guy. And so, no, it was a really delightful read. And I mean, without giving it away, the way the story, I mean, it just like you said, a lot of the fairy tale elements. I, I, I don't want to give it. There's a bear, folks. There's a bear in it. <laughs> a bear. Uh, just is it's just something else. Um, the whole time I'm reading it, I'm just thinking like personally wrote this, the imagination has to be just, just out of control. Like, no, I was really impressed by that story. Yeah, no, I, I just loved it. I mean, I, I had to stop about, I don't know, two thirds, three quarters of the way through. And I actually went out and uh, I uh, told my girlfriend, I like, summarized the whole plot for her. You know, I was just like, you know, you got to hear, you got to hear this, this uh, about the story I'm reading. It's so cool. So yeah, no, it was, I, it, I, I, I thought it was really, really, like so well done. I I just really, really, really loved it. Um, Rebecca, you also mentioned the Stephen Graham Jones story, which was another one of my favorite stories in the book. Um, it's called I Was a Teenage Space Jockey. Um, do you want to just talk a little bit about, about that story? Uh, yeah. So uh, Stephen Graham Jones usually writes horror, but I don't think I would put this one in the horror category. This is almost more of a coming of age uh, moment. Uh, there's a a boy whose uh, older brother uh, is no longer in the picture. Uh, And the only memory he really has of him is uh, that he set the high score on the arcade uh, game where they, where they, you know, would both go and like play uh, arcade games and stuff. So this is in the age of arcades as well. Uh, And so sort of in a expression of, of grief and a way to sort of reach out to his brother. He goes and tries to set the high score on this arcade game and things that you don't expect to happen, happen. And there's some danger and there's older kids. And 
things like that. So I don't want to say what happens, but I thought it was just really touching and really moving. And there were, you know, a few moments where I was just sort of like, oh, oh, my heart, my heart. Yeah, it definitely wasn't, I wouldn't call it like a traditional horror story. It was maybe like a little bit more of like a Ray Bradbury kind of horror story, like something Mm. Wicked This Way Comes or something where it it sort of has the the sort of darker, um, you know, aspects to it, but not, you know, there's not like, you know, blood spilling, you know, brain <laughs> right. splattering and, and right. anything like that. Um, uh, so John, any, uh, any thoughts on, uh, I was a teenage space jockey. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I love that story. Obviously I, I, um, I also published it in Lightspeed first. So, you know, uh, mm-hmm. it was one of those where it's like, you know, uh, it's always uh, all the light speed stories are always fighting against each other. Cause it's like, I love them all, of course. So <laughs> um, it's like trying to pick your uh, favorite child or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I was uh, very excited to get that story and uh, uh, glad that it got the kind of reception that it did. Um, you know, I mean, it, it got a lot of nice reviews and um, you know, uh, I don't, I can't remember if it got reprinted in any other volumes, but I mean, uh, it, I, I was very, uh, gratified to see it uh, at least uh, resonate with Rebecca. So, um, <laughs> and end up in the book. Yeah. Well, cause I mean, I always want, you know, cause, cause it's like Rebecca said, it's sort of said in the eighties during the, the heyday of mm-hmm. the video arcades where, you know, it was a little bit, I guess a little bit dangerous, you know, the older kids might yeah. beat you up and steal your quarters and stuff like that. And it, you know, it references, you know, very specifically all these specific uh, arcade games like Galaxian and, and stuff like that. And I always kind of wonder, you know, like I grew up with all those games, so I know exactly what he's talking about, but mm-hmm. I wonder like how different the experience is of someone who doesn't know any of those games. Like, I just kind of wonder what it's like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what, what do they picture when they, when they hear the name Galaxian and stuff <laughs> like that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it must be like reading a science fiction story, <laughs> you know, where it's like, <laughs> Hey, there's a bunch of made up stuff in here and I can kind of picture what they're talking about, but um, not really. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah Fender, since you have anything you want to add? You must hit a little different if you know the games. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I did. Because I grew up in the 80s uh-huh. with them as well. And yeah, that was that was a great part of that story. I was like, oh yeah, Galaga, I remember these. <laughs> yeah. And Galaga, for the record, is my game, man. So <laughs> just even as recently as like two years ago, I think I spent like three hours playing uh, Galaga. So uh, yes, I, I consider myself a pretty good <laughs> so i really so was, loved it <laughs> was that in an, an arcade or like where did you play it? yeah actually it was on the this is so random but it was on the joko cruise i don't know if you're familiar oh, with that uh-huh. it's like this yeah. science fiction fantasy cruise and they set up an arcade on the ship uh and you yeah. know it's open you know so you can go play as long as you want so i think i spent like an oh we nice. would go pretty constantly but i think i spent an entire afternoon there just playing collect. so yeah, like the the video arcades have kind of made a little bit of a comeback. I mean, like when I lived in New York, there's a place called um, Barcade mm. where you can go. And um, here in, in Austin, there's a place called Cidercade. Um, so it's kind of like nice. you, know, you can get alcohol and um, mm-hmm. play old arcade games. And now, you know, I don't have to worry. Well, I have to worry less about being beaten up by bullies, <laughs> I guess. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I can pretty much have as many quarters as I want. So, yeah. <laughs> you know. Nice. Um, see, Fender, since you have any uh, arcade memories or anything like from the, from, yeah, did you ever yeah. uh, have to I dodge bullies to play, or anything? Like oh yeah, He's, I remember Tempest. Anybody remember Tempest? 
Oh, oh yes. yeah, yeah. Man, I used to play the heck out of Tempest. Um, used to play uh, Centipede, but that ball would get caught oh, on your yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> So Yeah, I remember. I mean, I grew up in the 80s. So I remember a lot of it. Heck, I mean, what's well, funny, what, the whole time I'm reading Steven's story, I'm also thinking of The Last Starfighter because so much of oh, the yes. based on anybody who grew up in the 80s with arcade games, right? And so, yeah, I was at the arcade. Now, I, we didn't have, I didn't have the bully problem. Like, bullies didn't last long in my neighborhood. That's all I got to say. <laughs> didn't last long if you were a bully in my neighborhood. That wasn't going to happen. So there, was, there wasn't a pecking order like that. You, you, it was going to be rough on you if you decided, I'm going to take up the occupation of bully. So um, that was stuff that I would see on TV. And I'd be like, look at these bullies. These are interesting uh, creatures. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but, I mean, I do remember going to arcade, having to have all the quarters, or when they would make you for some reason change your quarters to those annoying coins and yeah. Oh yes. I mean, Tokens. That was, that yeah. was the life. Okay. Yeah, that was the life mm-hmm. back in the day. So <laughs> yeah. the story it did hit with me in in thinking about all those games again and you know, um trying to get your name up on the game, right? To get the high score. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was uh how, that, that was fun times. Yeah, and like how that seemed like, you know, an achievement. Like it like it's like a sort of a little slice of fame, even if it was only there for a week. But you know, wow, if you got like the top score, you gotta put your initials in for like a couple of months. And every time you'd go back, you'd check to see if your name was there. So, you know, I think that that speaks also to what makes a story successful. Is it so evocative, Mm -hmm. you know? And and I'm always impressed. Again, you know, I said this before, but when people can do that in very few words, you know, and, and like evoke all these memories for different people because we probably all are very different people with very different you know sort of lives um you know that that's amazing that's successful uh and so even more than the sort of fantastic elements or something there's this uh ability to tap into like uh what it is to be human uh and and that's you know sort of what i'm looking for in a story too i think that that's that's great yeah, well, speaking of memories, I, I, I thought it was interesting mm-hmm. that in this book, there are two stories that deal with the uh, the theme of memory erasure. And this is a theme that's near and dear to my heart. One of my first mm-hmm. big publications was about erasing, mem- you know, erasing painful memories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm trying to find my note here. The um, tr- What are the titles of the stories? One was... Um, delete Your me- First Memory for Free. Yeah, Delete Your First Memory for Free... And was it the algorithm will see you now? Was that the other one or? Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I always like to see the theme of memory erasure. Actually, you know, my, my cousin was, was doing a little movie based on my story, but mm-hmm. then, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind came out. Oh. <laughs> and I kind of, I was yeah. about to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> kind of nixed that, but, um, um, but yeah, so, so Fenderson, you want to jump in there? Like, what do you think of this idea of? memory erasure in, in science I mean, fiction. It's, it's always fascinating, right? And I think what I love so much about this notion of delete your first memory for free was that, okay, here was a, here's a, normally memory deletion is seen as terrible, right? You're, you're losing a part of yourself. And so it was interesting seeing that story, how it could, I suppose it could be for, for good in some, in some cases. And so really like that story as well as the, the algorithm will see you now was just such a, a human story. It was like, and I, I love speculative fiction stories that are so wedded to when I read something and it's just wedded, wedded to real life. Like you really get into the characters and you see 
this couple uh, going through things. And I, you know, the, this person, the main character who is, a, who is a psychiatrist and dealing with their patient and how there's issues of loss in there. Now, all of that um, is also interwoven with uh, this futurist element and the notion of uh, memory erasure and how it dealt with issues of trauma as well as um, disability. It was just, just a, such a well-written story. That one stayed with me for a while. Hmm. Yeah. What do you think about that, John? Because, yeah, like I, I also, I, you know, and, and because I had this this story, I sort of had my antennas up for other memory erasure stories my whole life, mm-hmm. basically. And um, and like Fenderson is saying, I don't I can't think of one necessarily other than this this one erase your first memory for free that um, treats memory erasure as mm-hmm. basically just a good thing. You right. know, like I, I think the sort of natural way for the story to go is to have this theme like if you erase your mistakes and erase your um pain then you're erasing yourself and what makes you human and what makes you an individual and, and everything so it was kind of a novel treatment to, yeah. to just have have the idea like oh maybe it would just be good you know yeah if you could um but do you are are you in agree- agreement with me there that you you can't think of uh, a, yeah. another story that's that's taken that exact uh tack yeah, nothing. Nothing in me it, it leaves me to leave to mind. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's possible I did delete that memory at some point. But, um, no, uh, I mean, I actually, I, I, I was kind of thinking when we started talking about this that it's like, well, uh, I, I, I have a selective memory deletion when it comes to like stories and things. So it's like, it's these these panels are hard for me because it's like I just read like a thousand other stories for this year's volume, and I'm supposed to remember the stuff that I did last year. I've read so many stories since then. I have to, I have to like selectively erase my uh story uh synopses memories uh to <laughs> keep my brain clear to be able to process the new things that i'm reading um but uh but no yeah i, I can't think of anything um uh yeah i mean that actually kind of seems like that would be a good anthology uh theme um just because it does come up uh so much in uh, across a variety of uh you know like it shows up in, in in all media like in tv shows and movies and stuff and so um you know i i think that could uh that could work. We we could we could find out for sure if there is another one out there. But uh, yeah, that's the I don't I can't think of one. Yeah, I mean, if anyone listening knows of one, you know, let us know because uh, you know, I, I I can't think of any. Um, Rebecca, is there anything you want to add on this whole subject of erasing memories? Oh, I guess just you know to echo that that's what I really that's what I think made that story stand out. That delete your first memory for free. I think it's sort of deceptively simple sort of slice of life. I think at first glance, people might be like, I don't get it. How is this one of the best stories of the year or something? But I think because it does sort of bring up like, what if our brains are the enemy? (laughs) Like, what if, you know, it it would be okay to get rid of a few memories. Uh, Certainly I can relate to that. Uh, And I think, you know, especially in this day and age, we've all said or done something, you know, that we wish we could remove. Uh, and what if if we could just remove that? It's not that we're losing ourselves; it's that we're gaining our better selves. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was very, um, very compelling. And like like everyone said, I, I don't think I'd seen that before. Uh, and plus, it was it was it is also a very sweet story. I think you know it's sort of a, a has sort of a gentle uh, gentleness about it uh, that I thought was great and that really appealed to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we've we- all we've all said things we regret. 
usually on Twitter. Well, <laughs> right? <laughs> so what if you could just delete that whole memory from the collective yeah. consciousness? Like, you know, that would be great. <laughs> Fortunately, when we say things we regret on the podcast, Dave can just edit it out. <laughs> and then only us three people know, or four people, yeah. Um, but uh, before we move Sounds on... Sounds like you erased your memory of one of the panelists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah, before... I wasn't counting myself when I said it. But, um, uh, the, uh, before we move on from this, uh, one fun administrative note uh the algorithm you the algorithm will see you now um it appeared in an anthology called vital which is like a, a sort of future of healthcare uh, anthology and when i when i saw that it had come out like i'd heard about this anthology and i saw it finally come out i looked it up and i'm like on amazon like i could see like Amazon's just easy to find where the pub date of something is. And so I like, I looked there and I found it and it was like December 31st. Are you kidding me? Like this book came out on the last day of the year. Are you serious? Like, and so it was like, I was like just double checking. I'm like, is that real? Because sometimes things get added in Amazon and it's like not the official pub date, you know? And so I'm like, okay, well this is important. Like it, did it, did it publish on January 1st or cause like, publishing on december 31st is a weird time um, um uh and turned out it, it was so he uh, he made it right under the wire there and uh ended up in the book so that was pretty cool huh yeah i wonder if there's some story behind how it that is does seem sort of like an odd date yeah. to release a book on i mean it, it it's, a small, like a it's a small press <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it, it's a small press and like i, I don't know if I don't know if when they did that, they, if they realized what they were doing by releasing it literally on the last day of the year, um, just because of like award eligibility reasons. And, mm. you know, for instance, for this, like I could have easily missed it, um, you know, so uh, I'm glad I did. Maybe, obviously, maybe they're just, they're just hoping to appeal to all the people who just get drunk on New Year's <laughs> Eve and yeah. go buy science fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like they've um, drunk, they drank so much on New Year's Eve that uh, they're going to need to figure out some uh, inventive uh, solutions to healthcare, uh, <laughs> like you know, to you know, keep 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 living, I guess. Uh, um, so I want to get Fenderson back in here. So, uh, were there any other stories in the book that kind of that you had anything you wanted to talk about on, or that stick out in your mind, or anything oh, like that? I mean, oh, my turn to talk about things that stuck out. So, I mean, first of all, the book starting off. Uh, with a uh, story set in Trinidad was something close to my own heart when uh, the Sukiyant in it by uh, that is 10 steps to a whole new you by uh, Tanya LeBert was, was a, was a pleasant surprise to see that story in there. Um, Love that story. Well done. Um, some other stories that stick out to me. Um, the cold calculations was just the cold calculations was like was this trippy story because on the one hand it's about this, about um, this spaceship pilot and, you know, the stowaway and the good old thing of physics and we've got to get rid of these things. But then it takes you to all of these other places and time and space. And then somehow they all somehow come together. So I, uh, that one was one of those stories that stayed with me as well. Um, I'm trying to think of some others. We already went through Skinder's Veil, of course. Uh, well, actually, while, while you think about that, I'll, I'll jump in on the right. gold. Um <laughs> Cold calculations was this story called? Um, yeah, the cold calculations. It's a, um, you know, it's it's a play. There's a, a famous story from the '50s by Tom Godwin called "The Cold Equations," where the premise is that there's a a spaceship and it has to get to this colony to deliver um, badly needed medicine or vaccine or something, and um, there's a stowaway on board, and that's going to cause the ship to not reach its destination, and so the pilot has to throw the stowaway out of the ship to. Um, you know, just to, to 
for the greater good. And um, and there's like a long it's 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 been a story that's been much discussed in science fiction. Um, and there's this long history of critiques of you know is the situation uh, contrived or mm-hmm, you know yeah. like and and so on. Um, but, but just to set that up, if anyone doesn't know, so, so Rebecca, do you have any thoughts on the cold calculations or like, what did you think when you first read it? Well, so I wasn't familiar with the the classic, uh, story. I think John brought that up too, uh, when we did our event and I was like, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly I'm not familiar with most of like classic science fiction. I am a dragon Lance reader. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but, um, uh, so, so I thought that that was, you know, very compelling, obviously the situation and then the sort of interweaving, uh, what Fenderson, uh, sort of alludes to this interweaving of other stories, uh, where people had to make, you know, difficult decisions and, and things like that. Uh, yeah, I thought it was great. Uh, very emotional, very well-written. Um, and the fact that I, I like, even though I didn't realize it at the time, I really like this idea that it's in dialogue uh, with mm-hmm. a classic science fiction story. I, I love seeing that. I think there should be more of that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to, to see people responding to it positively in that way. Like, you know, both people who have, who, who do know the story and then people who do, who didn't know the, the story. Um, and, and actually when I came to it, uh, you know, being familiar with the original story or, or the, the Godwin story, like, and and knowing, like Dave was saying, like a lot of people have written these sort of responses to that story or like discussed it, uh, you know, at, at length. Uh, but so then coming to it's like, oh, a, another story in dialogue with the cold equations. OK, you know, and so it was like I, I wasn't really expecting it to be like to like knock my socks off and, and be like, oh, yeah, it's going in the book now. Um, you know, so uh, well done to Amy Ogden. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I. Uh, I, I thought I had read enough of those uh, in dialogue with uh, uh, Godwin stories, uh, but uh, apparently I need at least one more. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a fascinating idea to me, though. Like what, it, like I was saying, like people um, reading the Stephen Graham Jones story without having played, yeah, those those specific arcade games. The idea of reading this story without mm-hmm. knowing about the Cold's equations that's that's really interesting to me. I hadn't, yeah, I, I hadn't thought about that, but that must be. Uh, yeah, much different experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually. Yeah, I, now I definitely. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say now I just want to go back and read it too. I'm, I'm really yeah. interested. Um, I think it's still on Lightspeed. We had reprinted it at some point. Um, uh, the the original story. Um, and because uh, uh, one of the early stories we published was a story called The Old Equations, which was only kind of in dialogue with it. It wasn't like the. Like, Amy's story is definitely like hardcore in dialogue with that story. Uh, the, the the old equations was kind of like riffing on the old, uh, the cold equations. Um, and so, but uh, you know, we re- reprinted it back then and um, you know, so, so, so I think it is still up on the website, but um, uh, anyway. Yeah. And if it's not, I mean, I, I forget if it was escape pod or Drabblecast yeah. or something did, did it. And I, I remember it being quite good there um, mm-hmm. production of it. So I'm, I'm sure you could find that as well. Yeah. Um, okay, so so back to Fenderson. So, have you thought of uh, any other stories that you uh, think we should uh, touch on here? Um, I'll, I'll just bring up a few. Let me see. What did I like? I'll just go through one I liked. Um, the frankly impossible weight of Han was <laughs> just a fascinating story. Uh, it's one of those stories where the world building, the 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 speculative aspect of it was amazing. Uh, there is science. In, it, I, I loved it, by the way, because I like a story that breaks genres. <laughs> There's science here. Mm-hmm. There are gods. There's there's everything that you can possibly 
uh, want. Um, really great story. Yeah, well, it's sort of like yours in a way, you know, where you have this sort of classic science fiction setup, and then, you know, uh, bend the genre to make it, yeah, like fantasy or or whatever. I mean, the, the premise basically is that this scientist has invented a duplicating machine, and then the duplicating machine starts duplicating itself, and mm. this causes a like, sort of worldwide crisis, um, and and definitely goes in these sort of supernatural directions that I wasn't necessarily expecting. Um, See, so, see, so John, do you uh, do you uh, do you remember uh, anything you wanted to that you could say about that story? Um, yeah, I mean, I just, I, I, I agree. I, I thought it was really interesting what, what it does. Um, but what, what you're saying about the, the, you know, the, the different genre elements, um, it's stories like that and, and like Fenderson's story, uh, you know, that also do that, that like really makes me, uh, frustrated at the whole, uh, um, you know, sort of codified, uh, science fiction slots and fantasy slots that I've done to myself in both both best American and in Lightspeed, you know, like I have to label something one or the other. And it's like, um, just because of the way the, the magazine and then the book is structured and, and you know, cause it was like, we want it to be equally appealing to both people who say they like science fiction and people who say they like fantasy. And so, you know, we want to have it 50, 50, but then there's these stories that are like, well, but these are touching on both things. These, these, these could be either or both, <laughs> you know? And so like, how do you count those when you're, when you're, cramming them into slots um uh and so like it, it just gets frustrating sometimes um you know but, so, so how did you how did you count like fenderson's story um and, i and think so fenderson's story was fantasy as far as where we're counting um and uh yeah they were both fantasy uh I, well because i think um you know I, I can't remember my exact thought process at the time but i mean uh, when I think about it in general, like uh, uh, a little a little drop of fantasy in a in a story that's like otherwise entirely science fiction kind of makes it fantasy. It's like the fantasy's so powerful. There's so much powerful magic in that drop of fantasy <laughs> that it turns the whole story. You know, because it's like once you have because because science fiction is supposed to be like you know speculative and theoretically like possible based on existing actual scientific knowledge and all that kind of stuff. And so when you drop in something, it's like okay, well this part's magic. Um, then it kind of makes everything is, you know, sort of touched by this fantasy. Um, so I guess that, that's, I mean, that's, that's a lot of pedantic uh, sort of uh, arguments I get into in my head. Um, but right, can I um, ask a question? Yeah. John, were there any stories that stumped you? Cause I'm thinking of one that kind of stumped uh, me cause I was trying to place it <laughs> myself. Uh, what stumped you uh, as far as which genre it is? Was our good old cold calculations. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I called it science fiction. Um, mm -hmm. just, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, again, I can't remember, uh, if I, uh, what, uh, it what gets interactive at through, one but, point and yeah. It, yeah, it, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I mean, I probably defaulted to that one, uh, because of the, the, because of the cold equations right. it being in dialogue mm -hmm. with that and everything. And so, um, a, a lot of times it's like, I just go with the over, what, like the overall feel to it to me feels like, um, you know, uh, yeah, well, that's like George R. R. Martin's furniture thing that, it's oh got yeah. The robots furniture. and spaceships yeah. It's science fiction. Yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, I'm sorry. Um, what is but, that? I'm not familiar with it. Oh, G George R. R. Martin has this, uh, sort of mini lecture that he gives sometimes where he says that people have all these, um, you know, thoughtful, philosophical, <laughs> uh, complicated, theories about what makes something science fiction or fantasy 
but that really what it boils down to is is fairly superficial aspects of the presentation. Like if there are robots and spaceships, then it's science fiction. And if there are dragons and unicorns, then it's fantasy and Mm -hmm. all the stuff about uh, the scientific worldview and stuff Mm -hmm. doesn't really matter most of the time for how people actually categorize things Mm -hmm. in practice. Yeah. Interesting. So, so the age old question is what is Star Wars? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It's a little bit of both. Yeah, and then you get into science fantasy, and then there's a whole exactly. other argument. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had I had a story that I published in uh, Lightspeed. Um, I can't remember which year it was, but uh, it was it was so science fantasy, and it was um, and it was like I think it was like fourteen thousand words or something. So it was like longer than we usually publish, and so I decided I was going to do a two part serial, right? And so since I have those slots, I took uh, I, I published the first slot and I called it science fiction, and then in the second slot or, or in the second part of it when we ran it, I ca- I put it in the fantasy slot. So I'm like, all right, well, okay, I'm not I'm not making any judgment calls on what genre that story is, except except that it's clearly both. Uh, <laughs> Actually, so so speaking of magic, I actually had some quotes here that kind of makes me think of. So, um, actually, I, I should I should have written down which story this was from. But but one of these one of these excellent stories in this book ha- contains this quote. Uh, later, I oh no, this is this was the um, uh, the 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 four the the, the the last forest on earth story. Oh um, yeah, mm-hmm. the Future Library story. Yeah, Future Library, right? Future Library, yeah. Um, the the narrator says later I learned it was that way with writers that every seemed everything seemed like fate or magic to them and it was always totally normal. Uh, so there was that, and then um, I had another another quote I was going to connect with that, um, but um, it's my note somewhere. But 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 basically it says that uh, that people become writers because they think that they can save the world, and so. Uh, I was just curious, since we have a bunch of writers here, <laughs> I was curious. Uh, do you think that all that writers think that they can save the people who become <laughs> writers because they think they can save the world? And does uh, is writing just sort of feel like magic to to writers? And that's just part of the part of the thing. So, so Rebecca, do you have any uh, any response oh. to either <laughs> of those things? Well, my first response is I, I think I became a writer because I was hoping I could save myself. <laughs> I had a much smaller goals in mind. Um, and it's not magic. It's hard work. It's exculpatory. It's uh, bleeding on the page. I know that's a little trite to say, but for me, it's definitely true. Um, so I don't, I don't know who these writers are <laughs> that are, that are conjuring uh, words and not extracting them uh, from their flesh, uh, but uh, they're not the, uh, and certainly, while I, I hope that my writing makes a difference, uh, particularly in the expansion of genre and, and like what it means uh, to write fantasy and, and who gets to be in a fantasy story and 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 what the nature of you know sort of uh, heroes and villains and all of those things are. Those are the things I like to interrogate. Um, hopefully, that may change the the, the genre world, uh, but I'm, I'm not I'm not aiming so high as to, to change the actual world. No. <laughs> Cause I mean, I definitely, you know, was in that camp when I was younger that I, I honestly thought I could change the world by writing and my, my ambitions have uh, contracted somewhat since then. Now I just want to, you know, get a novel done and, uh, you know, keep in touch with my friends. But, um, but I don't know, Fenderson, did you, uh, 
you ever feel like your writing could save the world? Is that part of I'm why writing, you I think I came to writing too late. It had all been leached out of me. <laughs> when I was younger, I thought <laughs> exactly. hip hop was going to save the world. Okay, I thought Public Enemy was going to save the world uh, and De La So, but that, that didn't happen. I think by the time I came to writing, uh, I was probably a bit more clear-eyed, but I, I certainly did, and I still do want my writing to inform. Uh, so I, you know, I want to, of course, entertain and tell a great story, but I also hope that my story, um, my stories say something meaningful to people, that it reaches people in a meaningful way, that I pull on aspects of history. I'd, I'd love as an, as an educator, I'd love people to go back and I want to know more about that and research things. And so, yeah, I think I, I, I write with a type of purpose, which of course, again, is first and foremost to give people a great story, but, you know, I also want to um, talk about things that I think aren't talked about enough and show people who I think uh, don't appear enough and that kind of thing. Yeah, well, actually on that subject specifically, so there were two stories in the book that I, I wanted to highlight. So it's the Cat Val- uh, Valenti story and the Carolyn Yoakum story, both kind of deal with, uh, you know, female protagonists who feel... Um, you know, ignored or, you know, in so invisible, um, because of, um, because of being women. Um, so, uh, so in, in the Yoakum story, there's a quote where she says, or no, sorry. No, no, sorry. This is from her, in, in, in her author's note, she says, uh, it is about marginalized voices for all of us who have ever been told that our art is too complicated or confusing simply because it comes from our perspective. It is about the struggle to be seen and remembered. And then um, in the Cat Valenti note, she says, uh, I, and yet I could never shake the feelings that this whole story was about no one asking a woman what she actually wanted over and over again until she died of it. Hmm. Um, so, Rebecca, do you want to jump in on that? Do you, um, did you sort of, uh, did, did you notice that theme sort of running through some of these stories? Uh, yes, <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. I don't know. You know, so... Uh, I think the uh, Valenti story, uh, I loved that, uh, L'Esprit d'Escalier, um, which is sort of a, not quite a retelling of Orpheus and Eurydice, but maybe sort of a, and then what, and then sort of a contemporary reframing of the story, uh, which I thought was, was just wonderful. And certainly it does, uh, it, the focus is on Eurydice and sort of what happens to her and let's say Orpheus uh, is successful in like bringing her back and, and then what does her life sort of look like? And it's sort of this suburban malaise, uh, but with like sort of fashionable hipster people, you know? So um, I, I thought it was very creative. It was very cool. I'm not super big on retellings, but I thought this one was really excellent. Uh, and so, uh, yes, I guess to your themes, uh, you know, I'm not, I, I would have to, I don't know. I think sometimes when I'm writing, I'm not going, oh, this is a feminist, you know, sort of take on this. or Oh, this is, you know, like if the story is successful, then that comes through in a way that feels organic. Uh, So I don't like things that are like forced, even though those are big uh, issues that I feel are like it's sort of important. And I want to see, you know, sort of the the female perspective on this or something like that. Um, It has to feel organic to the story. And I think, for example, Catherine's story is super successful at doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just the the scene in the story where you know, so it's like, so it's sort of like Orpheus is a rock star, and um, Eurydice's father Apollo is a rock star, and just the scene where 
um, where Apollo comes and like unexpectedly crashes at their place. And I thought it was just such a such a well done melding of the the Greek mythology and the the, the rock star lifestyle kind of stuff. Uh, it felt very authentic. Uh, and and I, I believe that she's. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say in voice, like voice, voice, like that's, you know, for me uh, in a story, like voice is so important. Uh, and she just really nails like sort of the voice of, of capturing this, you know, sort of, I guess, hipstery feel, everything from like tense to word choice. to It's a very masterful story. Like I think if you take it down to the sentence level, I think it's doing a lot of work. Uh, it's really interesting to me. Yeah. And the Yoakum story too, it's, it's, uh, it starts out among um, impressionist painters in France. And it seems like she had done a ton of research on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really felt like that showed, showed through in that story. Um, uh, Fenderson, do you have uh, anything you want to add about either of those stories? Yeah. I mean, I think I, both of those stories were, were fascinating to me. I mean, the, <laughs> I mean, I, I think, uh, First, I'll go with any story that retells uh, Greek mythology. I, I always love. Uh, and so what was interesting in that story was, I mean, I've, I've seen the story of Orpheus redone many times, but I thought the way of having Orpheus this time portrayed as like, a real jerk. Um, <laughs> that what he's doing, like, uh, you like me for doing this. Aren't I great that I've done this? I think it really got in the heart. You know, it's like when you, you've read these stories many times and something was always a bit off about it. And there it was, right? That uh, Orpheus is this really self-centered uh, person who believes that what he's doing, he's doing for everyone else, but it's just for his own Self and then like you know attaching that to music and rock star that for you guys who haven't read this story the appearance of Apollo is going to be hilarious <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Apollo and his crew is going to be pretty funny um, and so I just I really like that story I mean I always like Catherine's stories and I I like that different take on mythology so yeah um, and the other story was. Had its own. Oh, somebody's who's arrived. Oh, the dog has arrived. I was like, somebody's opening my door. The dog knows how to open doors now. Um, so he just pushed open the door. And so, yeah, I'm going to stop there because I've lost my train of thought because the dog arrived. <laughs> well, uh, I'll say, I mean, um, just also speaking of uh, of rock stars, uh, I also wanted to mention the Sam J. Miller story. Oh. Uh, it's called Let All the Children Boogie, which I guess is a line from the song Starman by David Bowie. And Sam says in his author's note that he's writing a series of five stories, all and all the titles are drawn from his five favorite songs. So he has uh, other ones he's published called uh, It Was Saturday Night, I Guess That Makes It All Right, and A Love That Burns Hot Enough to Last. And I was curious, John, about this, because, um, you know, back when I was a young writer, they always told you, don't quote song lyrics, the um, record labels are litigious and... You have to pay tons of money if you quote anybody's lyrics. And so right. I don't want to get Sam in trouble here. But I was just wondering, like, is that not true? Or yeah. like, how is... how is No, is, uh, it, it is it is true. Uh, it's just that uh, what count, how much of it counts as fair use is, is a very uh, sort of fluid and debatable topic. Like, I, I wouldn't uh, dare to uh, offer um, uh, any legal advice. Although Rebecca's a lawyer, so maybe she can. Um, <laughs> But uh, but I know for that uh, that um, the publisher did 
go through a bunch of stuff with Sam to, to make sure that it was clear legally for, for the title to use that. And, uh, and for what I can't remember uh, how much of, if any more of the, the, the lyrics are quoted in the story than just that. But I think there's um, three lines in the, in the body of the story. Yeah. 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 I, 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 I don't remember the details. I feel like he may have, uh, when we reprinted it, it may have like cut one or two of the lines from when it originally appeared or something, because I think le- the legal department at the publisher was like, uh, that's too much. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, 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 uh, it is complicated enough in general. It seems like to me that I understand why people would still to the, this day uh, advise people not do it, but sometimes it just, you know, it just feels like it's necessary, and and in Sam's case, it's like obviously these story these these songs all very much inspired him and and to 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 write these stories in the first place. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a tricky tricky situation, tricky waters to navigate. Hmm. I mean, Rebecca, do you have anything to add on on that, or just the story uh, in general? Yeah, nothing from the legal perspective. I wasn't that kind of lawyer, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I I love the story. That was another one I thought that had an emotional punch uh, that really worked for me, and I love just that feeling. I feel like that that story really captures that uh, sort of nebulous time in adolescence where you're trying to figure out who you are, and everything mm-hmm. feels sticky and new, and music is like a bomb in your life. Uh, like, you know, Fenderson said, you know, he thought that public enemy um, would change the world. You know, I think that's a very uh, sort of um, a feel you have in adolescence. That's like, you know, the, these songs are so emotionally uh, profound for me because I'm trying to find words to figure out who I am and what is my identity. And, and, you know, these, these artists seem to have some sort of insight into a uh, life that you don't have as a teenager. And so I thought this story was very effective. I thought it was, it was very, very cool, just capturing sort of that moment in time and what that feels like and how intense that, you know, friendship can be or that budding romance can be and how someone like David Bowie, you know, of all people can like, you know, c- can capture that in a way that you yourself cannot articulate. Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about this, but it, it's kind of kind of similar to the Stephen Graham Jones story in, a, mm. in the sense of you know recapturing this like pre-internet sort of um, world mm-hmm. of you know record stores and you know I, th- I think they drive like half an hour to like a Strawberries or something in the story mm-hmm. to 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 try to see you know to get get their hands on one song that they have no way of possibly mm-hmm. obtaining otherwise. Yeah, so um, remember what that's like. I don't. I mean, obviously the young people won't. But I was even talking to my daughter, and I was trying to explain to her, you know, what before <laughs> we had streaming music, you know, you'd have to sit with your, you know, boombox, and you'd have your, you know, cassette tape ready. And as soon as the radio song came on, you know, you hit, you know, record, and then you didn't know it all. <laughs> and you didn't know what song was going to be next. You just had to get lucky. And uh, she was just looking at me like I was crazy. <laughs> You're like, what the heck? You know, this is no way to live. But, you know, that just, <laughs> just the emotion of that, you know, and, and how exciting. Struggle was real. Mixed tapes, how the struggle was real, <laughs> yeah. you know, and the mixed tapes and how, you know, that really, you know, expressed an emotion, you know, that you couldn't, you know, articulate yourself. You gave that to somebody you liked or something, and it was a big deal. <laughs> That's the sort of thing that story evokes. <laughs> yeah, well, because well, I was going to say, I mean, there's a moment in Sam's story where the character, you know, here's this song on the radio that she just loves. Um, and just experiences this like existential despair when she realizes that, Mm. you know, she can still sort of hum the melody, but doesn't know any of the lyrics, doesn't know 
the artist or anything and has no idea if she'll ever be able to find the song again in her life, you know, and mm. it's kind of what things were like back then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything we're, we're running a little short on time here. Is there, were there any other stories or any topics or anything that anyone wanted to make sure that we get to before, uh, before we run out of time? Uh, I wanted to mention Root Rot uh, by Fargo Tabaki. Uh, it is a wonderful story about a man uh, who is part of a colony uh, on Mars uh, where they've sort of set up, uh, so he's Palestinian, I believe, and they set up like an Arab quarter on Mars. Uh, and he is sick and he is dying and he is an alcoholic, uh, but his family has never quite given up on him and they come looking for him. And it is this emotionally devastating story uh, about choices that people make and loss. Uh, and but it, but it's not hopeless. There is, you know, hope, uh, if not for the main character, then for the next generation. And it's just beautifully written. And I was not familiar with his work. So that was a real pleasure uh, to find uh, sort of this diamond in the rough, I felt. Uh, although he could be famous and I could just be ignorant of his work. Uh, but um I thought that it was it was really beautiful, and I think that is the story of all the stories in the book. That uh, at the end, I was sort oh. of like sobbing. I was like, "Oh my god, this story is like, you know, a, just a stab through the chest, but in like the best way." Uh, so I would definitely recommend people uh, make sure that you don't miss Root Rot. I think it's the last story in the in the collection. I'd actually, I just emailed, I don't know if John, if you saw my email, I, there's oh. the, a moment in the story where the main character is going through some sort of checkpoint oh, yeah. and they extract a pint of blood from him. And then he goes, he walks along and they return his pint of blood to him. And I thought that was such a striking image. I'm not sure exactly. I was asking John, do you, do you understand exactly what, why they're doing this? Or I don't know if anyone can explain that, um, but I thought it was cool regardless. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't remember it well enough to to say now because I, I didn't have a chance to reread it right before the panel. But um, yeah, I mean, I agree that's a, that's a really interesting detail. But uh, yeah, I don't I don't recall. Uh-huh. Um, Fenderson, any thoughts on Root Rot? No, I think I think Rebecca said all really powerful story um, uh, where it's basically a story of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, but taken to another world, and this individual. Mm-hmm you know, dealing with his own uh, alcoholism and just other mistakes he's made in life. It's just a really, I think it was, it was a great story by the way to end on. (laughs) Um, Right. Just a very emotional uh, story uh, to end on. Yeah. So (laughs) no, um, I thought that was a a great one to bookend the, the, uh, the anthology on. Yeah, it was actually fun choosing. I mean, uh, John and I worked together to sort of choose the order of the stories. And, you know, you mentioned the uh, Tanya uh, Libert story, 10 Steps to a Whole New View, that opens. And um, that is uh, told in, you know, sort of uh, Patois and, you know, part English, part Patois, like that sort of thing. And I chose that story to open the collection because I wanted that to feel like this is not your father's science fiction mm-hmm. and fantasy collection. You know, I wanted that to be a real punch in the face, which I think she does uh, both uh, stylistically and structurally. I think it's, it's very creative. Uh, and, and I wanted to end with root rot because I thought that that's the like hefty emotional uh, story. And I don't think, uh, after you finish that story, I don't think you're like, Oh, well, let's go on to the next one. You know, I think you have to sit, let that one sit a little bit. 
Uh, and you're probably like, let me put this book down because I need to go, you know, sort of mm-hmm. contemplate <laughs> my life. Uh, and so, yeah, so so choices like that uh, were a lot of fun. And, like, it's really interesting to sort of put stories together. I even put the Stephen uh, Graham Jones and the Sam Miller story next to each other because they both have those sort of teenage mm-hmm. 80s feel to them. Uh, so I'm glad, you know, you picked up on that as well. So. Yeah. All right. So I guess I'll, we'll just have time. I just want to mention one more story, uh, The Cloud Lake Unicorn mm-hmm. by Karen Russell. And just the reason I want to mention this is because she says in her author's note that she was she's always wanted to write a unicorn <laughs> story ever, ever since watching the, the cartoon The Last Unicorn as a kid. <laughs> and that was one of my favorite movies growing up. And I tried to get John to watch it, and he was insufficiently impressed by it. I was resisting rewatching it. <laughs> that fucking butterfly, man! I can't get past. Yeah, the I remember you hated the butterfly. Yeah. <laughs> but I just feel like I really stuck it to John, or that you know, the fact that the this this loving reference to the last unicorn is hey, in man. his anthology, and there's nothing he can do about. Yeah, that's right. It. Hey, man, I appreciate the last unicorn for what it is. I just you know, like I I loved it back in the day, you know, and then just like on rewatch, it I found uh, a lot of a lot more uh, complaints. Uh, but I should try it now because, uh, as uh, our friend Doug had noted one time on the podcast, like I used to hate everything, and then now I like things. It's weird. Uh, yeah, it's like I, I like when we review a TV show or a movie. It's like, wait a minute, John's the one that likes it. What's going on? Uh, so I, I'm getting soft in my old age. Um, yeah. But I mean, someone needs to tell Karen, like, look, girl, like, you know, you're Karen Russell. You can write whatever the hell you want. Like, you want to put unicorns in it? You do it. You know, you want to put some dragons in there? Go for it. You know, like, come on. How famous do you have to get before you can just do whatever you want? <laughs> um, but yeah, but we are we are pretty much out of time. So I think we're going to have to go into, into some final thoughts. So, um, uh, so, Rebecca, any final thoughts on this whole experience of... Uh, guest editing uh, Best American Fantasy and Science Fiction? Uh, just that it was a real joy. Uh, I, I loved discovering all of these stories and all of these authors, many who were new to me uh, and some who were perennial favorites uh, like Fenderson. Uh, and John is an absolute delight to work with. Uh, so thank you again uh, for inviting me to do this, John. Uh, it was great. And we've continued to work together on future projects, uh, which is uh, <laughs> just an extra little bonus. Uh, but, you know, now that I've gone to the experience, I think that I will definitely be picking up the anthology every year because I'm very excited to see what the next uh, guest uh, editor is going to do. And I'm excited to see what people are writing and where the genre is going. Uh, and what sort of new voices can be discovered and how far we can push boundaries uh, and still tell universal stories. Yeah, absolutely. So Fenderson, final thoughts. Yeah, so um, I'm delighted to be in the anthology. Uh, these are one great thing about sitting down and reading this is that, you know, all the stories are going to be good. <laughs> Not because of the names there, but, you know, like, OK, it's the best. So you don't have to worry. You know, you're an anthology you're like these are going to be great stories. Like every story in here. We didn't have time to talk about each one, but. Every story in here is a great story. Um, some stuck with me more than others, but I think I, I'll still remember most of them. Um, and yeah, I, I want to thank Rebecca for blindly choosing me, even though you might have thought <laughs> it was me. Uh, thank you, Scott, for including me in this group, especially again for a story that I wasn't certain I was ever even going to publish. So 
um, yeah, it's, it's great to be in here. And I hope that people enjoy these stories that are all pretty, very different, even if you can compare a few. Mm-hmm. Like there are two stories in here with Patwa, uh, the other one by Nalo Hopkinson. And they're two completely different stories. Um, and so, yeah. You'll also read a story about a pizza boy that we never got to discuss, but it's a pizza boy, literally, in space. <laughs> Amazing, right? Yeah. Like, who would have thought? Yeah. Yeah, that's a terrific story um, by Meg Ellison. And, and Fenderson, it sounds like you might need to, to go. So definitely, let's wrap this up. But uh, John, yeah. final thoughts and just what is the future of, uh, of this Best American series? Uh, yeah. So, uh, and I just wanted to echo all the uh, other thing, all the things Rebecca was saying. But like, you know, for her, like, I, I feel the same. Like, we're we're you know we're on the same wave. Like, there it was lovely working with her and 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 all of that. And um, uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, the future of the series. I mean, uh, it looks good. Uh, you know, Harper Collins bought Houghton uh, Mifflin Harcourt, which was the original publisher, and uh, uh, seems like they're very much behind it and everything. And it seems like there's no sign of it stopping anytime soon. So. Um, you know, uh, we'll keep proceeding on. I, I'm not, I, we do have the next guest editor lined up. I'm not sure if we're supposed to say who it is yet. So, um, I will refrain, but, um, yeah, uh, there's a, a bunch of other cool things, uh, in the works, uh, on my end. So, um, as, as Rebecca alluded to, uh, secret, secret things that we are not allowed to talk <laughs> about. Um, but, uh, maybe soon. Um, but, uh, but yeah. All right, cool. Yeah. And it sounds like you're, you're sort of, uh, you're right in the midst of the of doing the next one as we speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, uh, yeah, I, I owe the last batch of stories to the guest editor like very soon. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Well, we'll let you go so you can <laughs> uh, get back to that. Um. So let's uh, wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Rebecca Roanhorse, and PJ Lee Clark. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Always good to be here. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Rebecca Roanhorse, and PJ Lee Clark for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And remember to check out the new novel, A Slice of Mars, by longtime Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener, Garrick Cachet. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.